1: I, c- I just clapped so loud, my ears hurt. Let's wow. do it.
2: We're back. Hello. Welcome, everyone. I like we- your sweater. Very festive. Thank you. We got it. Let's hop into it, dude. Okay. No time to waste. So I was started doing the Steven Crowder thing. Yep. And I mentioned this to you, but mm-hmm. it was very difficult last week when I was making this Steven Crowder thing because... I was doing it on his Change My Mind segment. Mm -hmm. And so I would type in, for instance, he's got one that is Rape Culture is a Myth, Change My Mind. And I knew that there was a clip from that that I wanted to grab where he does something, I forget if it was good or bad in this particular moment. So I type into YouTube, Rape Culture is a Myth, Change My Mind, which is the exact title. And you can look it up yourself. It comes in anywhere around six or seven on the ranked list of things. And above it are videos that have a few thousand views. Right, Uh, so it's
1: not like it's being beat out by
2: the New York Times. No, his video has 11 million views or something. This one, I forget exactly what it is, and it's number six or seven. It's got it's in the green upvote percentage, and above it is all of these videos that have a few thousand views, pretty high dislike ratio, which you don't necessarily need to go off, but a title that is inarguably <laughs> less Not precise than the one that I typed in. Yeah, and I swear it felt like I was back in the days of Alta Vista where you're on a search engine and you're just going to the second and the third page looking for that thing that you want. Yeah, yeah. Well, you weren't. You were more like in China. Yeah. <laughs> it was le- it was less a search engine
1: mistake than it was censorship.
2: It was crazy cuz I'm so used to treating Google as the one-stop shop. It's oh, yeah. it's one two or three every time. And increasingly it's that knowledge panel that makes it so you don't even have to click a link. The answer is right there for you. And it scared me. It <laughs> it scared me. It's how much I trust Google and how much uh, implicit credence I give the first thing that comes up and how clearly I was obviously searching for this Steven Crowder thing and it said no you would rather watch these six things you need this is what you need to see and it's so obviously a political issue I mean Steven Crowder is makes no bones about being a political commentary person yeah no I, I I remember when Hillary
1: Clinton was running for president and people were saying that that Google was manipulating searches to hide the things that were controversial about her, the the mistakes she'd made while Mm -hmm. she was in office, and I gave it no credence. I went, that's crazy, and I didn't even check for myself by Googling those things. And then when you told me this, I had flashbacks to it. I "I wonder if Google really was hiding the
2: bad things about her while she was running for president. I I remember we actually met the son of the guy who did that research, and he told us this, and I was like, you're just trying to gas up your dad, you know? <laughs> like yeah, this, this is crazy. This, this is absurd. Why would Google? Why would Google involve itself in a honestly, presidential campaign? In something really as petty as a, as a presidential campaign? This happens every four years. Google hopefully outlives any particular. Yeah, uh, I've candidate. changed my mind. I've I'm, changed my. I'm mind. not sure <laughs> that that Google's so nonpartisan. Uh, whether whether or not they're partisan, uh, the. You could one one could imagine that they had an agenda, which is to which is to say, you know what we're gonna trust the democratic vote of link sharing. You know what I mean? And we're gonna do our best to parse out not what is true mm-hmm. at all, but what is popular linked to, and and in that way abdicate the responsibility of being the arbiters of what is true in the world. Which mm-hmm. is you know, it has an upside and a downside to it. That's clearly not what they have done it in this particular example and I don't expect it to stop here cuz yeah, why yeah. would it? Why would it stop with uh just vaccines where you're no longer allowed to clearly rank things on Facebook that say that vaccines cause autism. You know, why stop there? Why not go to other things that you think are patently untrue? Mm-hmm. And it's terrifying. <laughs> it's uh I I just at this point accept that I can't know the truth about anything yeah. <laughs> because no one is interested in in giving it to me uh so i don't know what to make of it it was it was made it a very difficult breakdown to do because i would like you lose. would remember a clip you say oh it was in that
1: <laughs> video about socialism
2: and then you google it and you couldn't find I it was t- and i type in i was like change my mind like socialism is bad i was like okay that's not the exact title like socialism is evil change my mind and it t- they just don't come up and you have to scroll down steven crowder changed my mind when you typed his name in that actually improved things do we want to she's going to cry or we got to
1: She's alternating between crying and laying down pouting. okay so we'll we'll let her we'll let her do it. I'll let her sit on the couch. I don't mind it's up to you
2: Good girl. got her We'll see we're back the dog the dog was having a hard time no she but didn't the one like being apart from us <laughs> the one uh there is an f- interesting philosophical question which comes of this and it's. Do you want a dictatorship of the masses when it comes to information? Meaning what I described in the first place, that uh, people are allowed to be wrong, but Google's job would simply be to rank what is popular, as Mm -hmm. measured by links and sharing and all that kind of stuff. To not make that executive decision. Or do you want somebody, maybe they're on your side, maybe they're not, who is the arbiter of what is true? And I think you prefer a dictatorship for the masses.
1: Well, I don't know, because that's easily manipulated. You just buy <laughs> sure, links. Sure, that, Like, that's why they stopped doing that. It's because they went, oh, a bunch
2: of people are that's just not, purchasing. No, no, that's not why they stopped.
1: They did. That's why they de-weighted uh, links, and now
2: they have, like, a complex algorithm. So, yeah, but, but the point is not that one should use links. The point is that one tries to create a complex algorithm that, rather than weighing in on what is true, simply says, this is where the consensus stands as best we're able to suss out, and of course people are going to try to game that all the time. But they're not saying, look, if if the consensus today is that vaccines cause autism, that's what's one, two, and three. If 10 years from now it's something else, we're, we're going to switch. It's not based on any particular research that we in this organization have done and that we feel is important to make sure that everyone agrees with, even if we determine that what is popular is bad or wrong. And I think, I don't think you want a group of people at the top that are making those sort of intellectual elite decisions for the rest, but I don't, I don't know. Sure. I put no thought into this, so I don't have an opinion on it. Got it. All right, cool. What do you got?
1: Completely different, but I think it's going it to me up. <laughs> Justin, can you pull up those links I sent you? Yes. <clears throat> so I saw this from Tim Ferriss, this first one here. I don't know if you want to watch it. This dude is completely blind and he is a better skateboarder than I was <laughs> with full sight And a year of practice. He's insanely good. And I saw this and I went, wow, anytime I've ever made an excuse that I can't do something, I'm just a chump. Because this guy is doing what everyone would have said is impossible. He's doing kickflips. He's grinding. He can't see.
2: I can only imagine the perseverance. How did he learn, I wonder? Do you you happen to know if he was blind from birth or if he he skated and then was blinded?
1: I don't know. I think either way, what my takeaway was, was the power of just... Thinking you can do something and then putting a ton of effort into it mm-hmm. is underrated. Have you seen the guy who uses echolocation who's blind? Dude, look at this guy. Look, look at this next video. I don't know if you've seen this. This guy has no legs. And he's a professional Tony Hawk sponsored skateboarder. <laughs> Just absolutely insane. So, yeah. This guy, again, no legs. He's doing kickflips. He's on a half pipe. He grinds rails. It seems deadly. He doesn't use gloves or a helmet, which yeah, yeah, that is was, completely insane. It's
2: one thing when you bang your shin. It's another thing when you land on your fingers.
1: So yeah, this got me hyped. I was watching this and I thought to myself, I can do anything,
0: which obviously <laughs> has
1: limits. My NBA dreams are not occurring, but yeah, that to me was a reminder that most people's Beliefs that hold them back are false beliefs that we have these limiting beliefs where you go, oh, I can't do this. I don't have legs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he goes, no, I'm pretty sure I could be a
2: Tony Hawk-sponsored professional skateboarder. I've been struggling with this because we were—I was reviewing a script that somebody submitted that was on Conor McGregor, and it's on his confidence. And one of the points that they make is—is I believe it's—they call it Pygmalion confidence, which is this idea that you only feed your brain positive things, no no room for self-doubt, for the exact reasons that you're saying, because oftentimes you can. You can achieve far more than anyone thought possible. But I feel like, and I don't know exactly where the line is, clearly you want to interact with reality in some ways. Yep. So I don't know what that means, but if Conor McGregor goes in and tries to wrestle Habib and thinks that because he's so amazing, he's only fed himself positive thoughts for that, it, that after six months of wrestling training, he's going to beat an undefeated greatest yeah. wrestler of all time, he gets stomped for four rounds. Well, So let's do
1: Conor. Let's yeah. do Connor. So, Connor's who the video is on. He starts out, he's on food stamps. Yeah. And he's a nobody. He's broke and no one knows him. And he goes, I'm going to be in the UFC. I'm 100% positive. Yeah. And then he puts the work in to outwork anyone else who wants to be in the UFC, which I think is important. But and I also, let's, let's just correct, because he didn't outwork. I'm sure there are people that worked well, hard. wait, than wait. Him. And he works smart. He trains mm-hmm. intelligently, right? So, those are his three things. He's putting a ton of time into the gym, a lot more when he was on the come up, actually, than he does now. And he's training intelligently. He's not just, oh, I'm going to become a fighter by swimming. You know what I mean? He's got professional coaches, but he thinks he's going to be in the UFC. He doesn't at that point say he's going to be a champ, but he's just like, I'm going to be in the UFC. And he does it. He gets to the UFC. And then the same thing, right? He says, I'm going to be a champ while simultaneously working really hard and having a good coach. And then eventually his positive talk runs out, right? He goes, I'm going to be the best boxer in the world. Mm-hmm. Reality wins, right? Floyd Mayweather is a better boxer. But it got Conor $100 million into the UFC, into the champion. So I do think, actually, even though there are limits to it, 99.99% of people, including Conor, are very well served by raising up. Do you know
2: what I'm going to say, though? What? Survivor bias. Do you know how many interviews of pimple-faced kids there are out there who work hard and work smart? Yeah, yeah, but you know the study. (laughs) The
1: amount of rock stars that make it, who think that they're destined to or that God is on their side is disproportionate. There's a power to belief, even if it doesn't guarantee success. So So, I'm not saying that if you're blind, you can definitely be a skateboarder. What I'm saying is
2: to think that it is impossible is to your detriment in most cases. I would question that. What I think we can agree on is that the only way to achieve that is with that belief. That's the only way to get there. But let's pretend that you're 19 years old. You live in Dublin or anywhere else. You're not good at MMA. You can go study to be an electrician and perform, you know, or you can dedicate yourself for five or six years to getting punched in the head and trying to do the same to other people. What should the average person do? There's only one Conor McGregor. And there's hundreds, if not thousands, of other people. And I'm telling you, he didn't work. Well, most people don't have to give up their. This skateboarder
1: doesn't have to not have a job Mm -hmm. to try to be a professional skateboarder. Sure. You know what I mean? What he has to do is when he gets off of work, practice skateboarding. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. When we first started this business, we actually, I kept my job, you know what I mean? I didn't need to have such an insane belief in myself. I'm gonna be an entrepreneur at all costs. I'm gonna take out a loan to start the business, quit my job, go into debt. What I did say was, I am so confident this is gonna work that after my 12 hour shift at investment banking, I'm gonna put time into entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's a way to do it without risking life and limb. But I do think that part of the reason we have a business is because we were just convinced. People would say, what if it doesn't work out? We go. Start another one. What
2: mm-hmm. if that doesn't work out? Start another one. Mm-hmm. It never occurred to me that on try ten, the business wouldn't work. Well, I think what you're saying is, and this is specific, like Connor had a very specific goal. I mean, I'm going to be a UFC fighter, which is more achievable than being a UFC champion for sure. Yeah, yeah. And for I sure. would argue, you know what? You could do that. Like you're you're going to be a hard worker. You're going to slave away. You got decent odds of that. Uh, we set a broad goal. Our sure. goal was actually like live in Brazil. And it makes three grand a month each. Yeah, yeah. And the blind guy,
1: I'm sure his goal isn't, I'm going to be the (laughs) best skateboarder in the world and a gold Mm -hmm. medalist, Mm -hmm. you know? And he's not trying, from what I've seen, he's not trying to be or publicly declaring it. Mm -hmm. He's saying, I'm going to be a good skateboarder. I'm going to be good at this and to be able to do this in a way that's fun and impressive. Sure. So I think, yeah, you don't want to just say that your goal is this thing that one in a billion people can. I'm going to be LeBron James, right? Mm -hmm. But i think it's certainly you are helped by setting goals that are outside of most people's comfort zone mm-hmm. and then
2: pursuing them not recklessly but persistently mm-hmm. and that's i mean i agree very much with what you said of course the devil's in the details of where where one defines reckless mm-hmm. right i mean certainly stepping into an octagon is a reckless act for everyone who does it right uh and persistently at what point does one should one quit i totally agree with well you. the other thing is you can pivot without quitting <clears throat> which mm-hmm. I think is important,
1: you know what I mean? Harder harder in this specific example with Connor, but for us, for instance, I want to be an entrepreneur. Charisma and Command did not have to work for me to be an entrepreneur. Yes. You know, In fact, it's our third business. We started out teaching people mm-hmm. parkour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think there is a way, the most important thing is just to, at the end of the day, say like, what is your goal? Is your goal really to sell parkour DVDs? Or is it to do something you think is interesting? Or is it to be your own boss? Or is it just to work remotely? I think getting clear, or is it multiple? You know, you can have a high goal, but always checking back in on why am I doing this,
2: mm-hmm. I think is important. Yeah, so one thing that might tie this together that Scott Adams talks about is systems over goals. And his general point is, in any given endeavor, you cannot guarantee success. Mm-hmm. The only thing that you have uh, a large quantity of control over is the skill that you take after putting in the effort. Mm -hmm. So whether or not our business worked, we learned how to start a website. You know, I learned how to market a a blog. Uh, These are things that even if I didn't become an entrepreneur, perhaps I could go to Google and be like, let me on your content marketing team or some other company that I liked. So what he advises, and I think maybe what anyone can do to play in the um, high return, low risk field is... Pick things that are systematic like that. Uh, so if you're if you're saying uh, take Conor McGregor for instance, you know if he views his fight against Habib not just as a fight against Habib, but goes, "What's going to make me a better MMA fighter?" Maybe it is worth it for him to invest all that time into wrestling. Yeah. But if he's singularly being like, "No, I'm going to out wrestle this guy and then go back to stand up fighting six months from now," probably not the best way to train for him. Uh, who do you think is going to win, him or Cowboy? Well, I
1: think. Uh, probably Connor. Yeah. I don't think Connor's ever been knocked out, right? He's He loses by submission. He's gotten knocked around, and then he gave up his neck to Nate, but yeah. That's fair. Nate did box him up. I don't know. Cowboy's just really good at getting knocked out. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I love Cowboy. I've been a big Cowboy fan. I've been hoping he would retire for years, mm-hmm. so.
2: I haven't. They've had no press. No. Have I missed anything? No, I think Connor's just over it. So. He doesn't th- want to do it. I want to make a video on him, but I'm so tentative to make any call because one of two things is possible one he is so dedicated to this craft right now that he's like i'm not showing up for a single press conference yeah two he has so much money and doesn't care about anything except promoting proper 12 that he's putting in half time at the gym and no time oh, in, neither. on the press circuit.
1: neither press just isn't fun mm-hmm. i think it's number three which is i'm still going to be the biggest draw oh it's not going to be a record baking pay pay-per-view well yeah. the ufc still needs me yeah this is you this is your life to some degree right at some point if you just are comfortable with your level of success, your priority is to not do things you don't like. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of negatives, but yeah. you avoid things you dislike. <laughs> to not, no. Know- <laughs> you, you avoid things you dislike. Yeah. And I think that's it. No one likes press. Every sure. fighter goes, this sucks.
2: I don't wanna talk to the media. Got I it. like punching people in the face and hanging out with my family. It just hurts me because I wanna make a video on where his mindset is at and I've got nothing. Yeah. yeah. So for t- it's a tough video to make because I'm pulling from old clips or speculating on where his mindset, yeah. and I have no idea.
1: Actors are the same, have you noticed that? In yeah. a lot of the, in a lot of the press tours, they'll just come out and be like, "Yeah, this sucks. I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk to you." They say it in jokes. It's like, "How are you going?" It's like, "It's my ninth interview
2: of the day. How are you doing?" <laughs> These junkets, yeah. yeah. they don't know. So, what don't... can you tell us about Avengers Endgame? It's just like oh nothing. God. nothing. Yeah, no, no one likes
1: to do press, and Connor's just big enough he can. Say well, I'm Sean not Evans do it. was
2: interesting from that perspective because they all enjoy hot ones. Or many people enjoy hot ones. In hindsight though. No one no one's Oh, they, they all say these are the this is the most fun I've had while they're there. Yes.
1: Yes. But I still don't think they're excited to sign up. In fact, most of them go, <laughs> I'm surprised by how much yeah. I enjoyed this. Yes. When they sit down, they go, It's a YouTube
2: channel, like I don't want to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's gonna ask me, you know, what were you thinking when you got your first role? Was yeah. that really exciting? No, they they're oh, yeah. pleasantly surprised. They go, This sucked a lot less than I imagined. Yes, yeah, by the by the quality of his questions. No, that was a good one. I'm glad that, that one has done well sean evans yeah what else do we have for today did you read any of the book that was sent to us some but i'm still on the um parts that aren't aren't new me too yeah so love yourself like your life depends on it i only had two initial thoughts one it's uh it's very good i i think it's i think it's great i think the idea of self-love is uh probably the field that i'm most interested in compared to confidence or even charisma Mm -hmm. at this point that's that's more fascinating to me but there was a couple things that i thought were interesting the most effective books, I feel like, and maybe even our videos and maybe even our programs, I don't know if we do this to the same degree, probably, are built on uh, this like almost essential half truth, which is that this is easier than it is. Mm-hmm. So when I think of the four hour work week, it's called the four hour work week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? And, and you're going through it and you're like, I just get a t shirt make a google ad yeah. and collect profit yeah. and <laughs>
1: like, no one no one i know works four hours you and i don't no. tim Ferriss doesn't
2: no but because he framed it in this eminently achievable way
1: yeah if it were called the work remotely 60 hours a
2: week but <laughs> at your leisure yeah because and it is less than i think many jobs but it's framed so easy that you take the steps yeah and similarly when he's going through his like self-love is it's so simple it's so basic you just say this and it, it's an incredibly powerful thing. I think it's a very, I think the practice of speaking to yourself and saying I love myself is still very good but certainly keeping that habit is hard Yeah. and uh, doing it over the long haul. I mean, there's a well, second says, part of the book. Right? Keep, <laughs> keeping it is hard. That's the funny thing
1: about these habits. I feel this way about meditation. I feel this way about um the love yourself meditations. When you need it when you're going through a breakup yeah. and everything is terrible yeah. and you read this book and it goes the reason you're sad is because you have a hole in your heart you tried to fill it with another person and that's a poor strategy you need to fill this internally because you will never dump yourself and you're like yeah yeah i'm in pain because what you do it takes seven minutes a day every day and here's here's the exact strategy you go, seven minutes a day no problem i would do this for three hours to make yeah. the pain go away and you do it every day and it works and you start to feel better and then the pain goes away, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you go seven minutes a day. <laughs> I don't think I have to do it today, and it stops. Yeah. And so you don't have you don't have any health built up basically for when the next blow comes. Yeah. So it's weird because you could prevent the devastation if you kept the practice up, but that's so hard to remember when you feel
2: okay. the uh, The book it's really interesting. There's this book that I'm reading. It's called A Master's Secret Whispers, and it's framed as a dialogue between the master, the Zen master guy, yeah. and the student. And the student asked essentially the question of like, why do I you know oh, I start and I give up like why do I do that? And he says as much. It's like you're just running from pain. What yeah. you need to learn when this is hard is to shun. Not sh- I. I don't think he says shun, but to release happiness in the same way. Yeah. Like what you want is you don't. Uh, you don't actually want freedom from the cycle. You just want freedom from the downside. Sure. And- <laughs> That's exactly what I want. <laughs> and what you will potentially maybe one day realize is that they're interconnected. There is no up without a down. There is no uh, thrill without the, that uh, sinking, come mm-hmm. down feeling. And so when you get that, you will be less drawn away from your meditation practice in the times when things are good because the good times will captivate you less. But if you try yeah. <laughs> to do that, you're still just running for the bad. So don't worry about it. <laughs> you're not going to get to be. What is enlightened. the answer? Just do it. Just do it enough. It, well, it's a really interesting. So the so what answer it, yeah, what is, is the answer? there's nothing you can do, is what he says. The fact that you've asked me this question shows that you're not there, and you're not there. And it's it's interesting because I've been wrestling with this. There's this idea of uh, being enlightened, and then the student always asks, "What do I have to do to be? What do I have to do to be enlightened?" Yeah, yeah. And it's like as soon as you've asked that question, you're just farther away from it. And the paradox is that you go, okay, I won't ask it. It's like, no, you're still, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you're still trying. Eventually, life hits you and hurts you and you makes you suffer, and you've ridden the roller coaster so many times that it just happens, it just clicks, and you no longer are your meditations for something; they are for themselves. You mm-hmm. know, and it's it's no longer to escape the pain of the breakup. It is in and of itself calls to you even on your best day
1: i don't know if i told you this our friend dylan went to a Vipassana retreat yeah 10 day i think it was and he i was like how was it expecting him to say it was hard it was boring he said it was euphoric wow it was 10 days no speaking meditating every single day and he said it was very quickly euphoria which i thought was interesting good for him i sense that i'd struggle tremendously <laughs> well he's been meditating for years he yeah. didn't just hop in yeah no he's he's uh he's been doing all that stuff he's the guy that runs mind bloom we've talked about mind bloom how do, have you the- continued to do it I've done two sessions, and okay. I'm gonna do my third this week. Got it. I've I've burned through all four.
2: Nice, <laughs> nice. I couldn't get the dosing right. <laughs> I got a question
1: for you. Speaking of, f tangents, yeah, or f transitions. How is your Cupid's poison arrow experiment
2: going? Oh, I mean, I told you. Uh, so the Cupid's poison arrow. I experiment. just want to wrap this up. We we <laughs> brought it up of on you, the podcast three weeks ago. Uh, I read this book, Cupid's poison arrow, that talks about the practice of careza, which is essentially if you're in a relationship. You uh, can engage in intercourse but no orgasm. And the entire idea, even if you're not in a relationship, is that orgasm creates that cycle that we were talking about of high and low. And it guarantees a low. And it promises, like many of these books do, uh, that all of your life's troubles will be resolved. You'll be fitter, all stronger. All your problems are caused by your ejaculation. More focused. Uh, you're going to be deeper in love and... I found that the biggest shift is that I got the flu. Nice, <laughs> nothing positive. Nice, happened. and it came a little bit more twitchy, right? A little bit less calm. Well, you know, it did expose that uh, I, sir, I really wanted dopamine in other ways. Is what I would say. So, like, I was trying at the same time to not look at our business statistics, and I think that honestly made it more difficult. Mm. Uh, and then the one thing—I mean, we stopped the girl that I was dating, and, and the next day she said. I love you three times more than I have the last three weeks. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. She's like, this does not work. She's like, I, you became my friend after that. And I was like, yeah, we're not even very good friends. <laughs> like That's awesome. Like we wouldn't be, so, we friends, but we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't like hang out yeah, as yeah.
1: buddies if we weren't dating. No, that's like, fascinating. So Because you guys were having sex, but just not, no orgasms. Uh, correct. And she said that that. Because the book says
2: that the lack of orgasms brings a couple closer. She said, I love you essentially one-third as much. <laughs> when you were not orgasming. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Uh, and Good I, to know. Don't trust everything you read in a book. You know, I think that it's worth trying for a lot of people because I, I do believe they have a lot of testimonials in there. And I think this is true of increasingly I'm realizing with fitness, self-love, charisma, all these things uh, – there are standard routes that are likely to work for many people, like low-carb diet is probably going to mm-hmm. leave you shredded. Except if your ancestry is from a different mm-hmm. area as most other people, in which case you might want a low-fat diet. And yep. that's going to be very different for you. So I think it's the same thing with this. If it's intriguing to you, give it a try. It's three weeks. You're supposed to see benefits from weeks two to three. I did not. Uh, I tried it way back in the day. I also did not enjoy it, but so I don't, we must have similar genetics. <laughs> I'm not saying that it's dead wrong. I'm just saying that it's not for me. Yeah, and I'm and I'm happy that I did the experiment, and I'm also happy that it's over. <laughs> Makes it sense. No bueno. Did you find anything good came of it? I mean, this was years ago, but I remember
1: that I quickly stopped. Mm. Did, nothing that made me want to try it again.
2: Yeah, we uh another after transition. We were going to try to squeeze one of these in before the uh, <laughs> the uh, Christmas break that we had. I came down with the flu, so we couldn't do it. But you said. The hardest work you've ever done for this podcast. You told me this. As we walked out of The Rise of Skywalker. And you oh, said, God. You said, that's the hardest I've ever worked for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, Suffice yeah, we were, to say.
1: We were going to talk about The Rise of Skywalker because we saw it, we had a podcast the day after it came out. So we went and saw a midnight show. And I liked the first part. I could
2: not wait for that movie to end. Yeah, I don't know if I wrote anything down. And it's not even worth ripping into. It's been several weeks at this point. But. We did. We did not dig it. I was generally disappointed in the uh, the same comment that everyone has made is that it seemed like they started a story, and then the second guy was like, "No, no, no." Yeah, not that. yeah, 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 yeah. That was my sense too. You guys clearly didn't have this written from start to finish. And then the end guy was like, "Just kidding. It was she was special all along. Also, they love each
1: other." <laughs> like. No, it was great. Clearly, there was supposed to be some Finn Rey romance at one point. Yeah. And he's like, I have to tell you something. And then they just throw it away. Spoilers. So that she can kiss Kylo Ren. No, the whole thing was, was terrible. The one thing I thought was interesting, and I, I have thought this before in other movies. Have you ever seen Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal? No. Who you follow with the mm. camera determines who you root for. Yeah. There's nothing redeeming about the guy Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. He, he's not committing his crimes for... A family, he's not do there's no ulterior positive motive. He's just a guy that does bad things for the pursuit of his goals. Mm-hmm. But because he is the character the camera follows, you find yourself rooting for him. Like, don't get caught by the cops. Yeah. Why don't you want this guy caught by the cops? Mm-hmm. He's just a criminal. Same thing here. They they follow these rebels who are very ends justifies the means, because they go to these random planets, they hijack cars, they blow stuff up, they kill tons of stormtroopers. And the whole time, you're just like, yeah, that was great. Woo! Oh, I'm so happy they stole that car from those innocent yeah. people. If you just had the camera following other people, these could clearly be horrible antagonists. Terrorists, <laughs> thieves. You know what I mean? And well, the- so that's what I think is so interesting about these movies, to me at least.
2: Yeah. Well, they they almost... In the first movie i was like they're going to do it when finn walks out and he's got the blood on a stormtrooper thing they're like they're going to humanize them yep we're going to recognize that there's been people in here for all these movies it's going to be amazing yeah you're nope. gonna it's going to be <laughs> tragic the death <laughs> of all these these stormtroopers he starts ripping through yeah like, he starts killing his own brothers <laughs> like they're they're you finn
1: maybe they're one yeah horrible <laughs> experience away from waking out of their trance exactly
2: nope but no just in general we'll i think that's that. an
1: interesting look into the into the human psyche and it kind of ties to that truism of Uh, You can't hate anyone if you fully understand them, Mm -hmm. right? Anyone you feel anger towards or hatred towards, if you understood their childhood trauma or what happened to them that day. Yeah, My friend had an experience like this at Date with Destiny. Some guy was kind of rude. I'll give you the short version. Some guy was kind of rude to him. He thought, man, what what a jerk. Three days later, there's the part where Tony says, is anyone here suicidal? Mm. And the guy, very begrudgingly, he's he's arms crossed, hood up. Like, clearly he's not doing it for attention. Just like, (sighs) and stands up they've been sitting next to each other the whole event and my friend goes wow i thought this guy was a jerk because he said a couple things but really he just didn't have the mental energy to think about me because he's trying to not kill himself Mm -hmm. he's here fighting the urge to just end it all Mm -hmm. and it's, it's just another you know the things we just love the people we know and understand and we have less tolerance for the people we don't know yeah
2: you know what i mean i mean i wonder if that just comes back to the the way in which we experience life, which is we are the cameramen of our own. That's what I'm saying. That's (laughs) exactly what I'm saying. Of course, he's a good guy. I've been following him around for over 30 years. That's exactly what I'm saying. Completely. Everything he's done is justified. And those other people on the road, they cut him off. Yeah. (laughs) No, you justify yourself. (laughs) This is The best
1: part is if you, in L.A., find anyone who is a pedestrian and a driver. Because normally when they're walking, they get pissed when cars try to go and they say, you should stop. And then when they're driving, they get pissed that pedestrians are in their way because they think they should go. Yeah. And it's, again, yeah, it's, it, just the idea, this is my ketamine takeaway of, of more empathy for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Star Wars reminded me of that. Just goes, whatever always... <laughs> perspective you have, whatever camera you're following, that's is who you think you the like. good guys are. Yeah. yeah.
2: The one that I love from L.A. is, and i the same day I've probably been on both sides of this, is you're waiting in line for an exit and people are blowing past you, cutting in. And you're like, those motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, yeah and then later in the day you're in that lane and you're like "Woohoo! yeah yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. make a great time <laughs> squeezing in at the last moment yep and you're like wait a second i I thought something about those type of people i can't remember what it was no yeah Done. different
1: different standards for different people sure
2: sure anything else that you had written down in the last week and a half
1: oh man i have so many notes from star wars but we won't beat that to death no. i was taking notes the whole time <laughs> every time i was frustrated i just went gonna talk about this on the podcast yeah there's one thing i thought was kind of interesting the news itself isn't interesting but i thought maybe it could lead to an interesting discussion which is there is a french company whose the a couple of high-ranking people were recently indicted i don't know what the criminal charges will be but they were found guilty of creating a culprit culture so toxic that 35 employees killed themselves and they they were uh basically they're going to get arrested or they're going to face punishment for this. And I thought that was interesting because the problem is one that from the outside is avoidable, which is you hate your job so much that you're going to kill yourself. You can get another job, but for these 35 people, it seemed inescapable so much so that they killed themselves. And I don't know. I just kind of wanted to bring that up in case there's anybody listening or watching who feels like their circumstances are so terrible that they're suicidal or maybe just depressed or angry as maybe hopefully a moment to pause and remind people that it's not as inescapable as you think. Mm-hmm. If you hate your relationship and you're thinking about killing yourself because your significant other is abusive, you can do everything in your power to get out. You can call the cops, you can move out, you can leave. You can like people didn't want to leave their jobs because they didn't want to not have a source of income. Yeah. So they killed themselves. I wish I could have grabbed each one of those people and just said, let's just try a month of no income. Yeah. Let's just try one month of quit quit today, quit today. Forget everything. You'll find food some other way, right? You'll go to family, you'll beg, you'll dance on the street. This isn't as inescapable as you think. And I just thought it was an uh, interesting topic.
2: I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. I, I mean, it, of course, they always do. It reminds me of the book that I'm reading which or finished today. It's called The Soul of Money. And it talks a lot about the underlying, one of the big underlying myths that makes people not give the charity, but also makes people sad, suicidal, all those other things, is the myth of scarcity. Uh, that there is not enough, that there is only one way, that uh, it's got to be competitive, it's me or them. Mm-hmm. And if I lose the things that I have, I will never recover something to make up for it. Mm-hmm. And the book is really good because... We naturally compare ourselves to the people in our similar circumstances. None of my friends are losing their jobs. I'm doomed. And this woman, I mean, has been to the streets of Calcutta with Mother Teresa where people have nothing. And it really powerfully illustrates that abundance can be felt when there's no material goods around you. Like when when food is, is sparse, she has these just heartwarming stories of people giving their last loaf of bread with the belief that, oh, no, like I always get enough. I always get enough, mm-hmm. and it made me cry like six times. It was a great book. Wow. There was this What's one. What's it called? Uh, the Soul of Money. It's Soul of Money. It's too long by a third. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, maybe even two thirds. Like it, if they just trimmed it down, I think it'd be better. But the one story that uh, reminded that ma- did make me cry was she's got two meetings in the same day: Chicago, New York. First one's in Chicago. It's this company that had a bad spat of PR, <laughs> and so they need to donate. She's the founder of the Hunger Project, and they help people with hunger. Mm-hmm. Um, get them food and teach them there's there's a whole other story there but she goes to the very top the rarefied air ceo yeah she's like the air is different legitimately (laughs) at the top of this skyscraper and we sit down i tell him what we do he's completely disinterested and at the end he reaches into a pre-printed check for fifty thousand dollars grumbles it across the table and ushers me out in 13 minutes i get on an airplane i fly back to new york and i go to, to harlem and this is many years ago even when Harlem was like not like a place that people hung out yeah, all the yeah, time. Yeah. It was uh, – Bad Harlem. Not even bad. Just like l- low income. And she goes and they're in a basement in Harlem and it's a bunch of community members. And she starts talking about you know these people in, in India who have, have nothing. And she says, you know, if, if you can give, give. And the one woman in the back stands up and says, uh, money has never been like a river into my life. It's been a trickle at best but whenever it comes in, I try to share what I have so I'd like to give you and she pulls out, you know, fives, tens. She's like, this is my $50 for that I was going to spend on food uh, but these people need it more. And then I'm going to cry. Everybody in the room gives money like uh, and they go in and they fish out and they ask their friends and it's ones, it's twos and she says she got, you know, 350 bucks from them and it was better than the 50 and so the story actually has a coda. So. The next day, she says, I can't take this guy's money, even though it could make a huge difference. And she writes a letter, sends back the check to the guy and says, you know, find an organization that you genuinely care about to Mm -hmm. do this and thinks nothing of it. Ten or so years later, she gets a letter from him. He says, hey, you might not remember me. I've since retired from this job uh, and I've been reviewing my career. And only one day stands out in my mind. And that was when I got your letter. And it. And it blew my world open because you weren't playing by the rules that everybody else played by you didn't want uh money at any cost it wasn't you know every dollar wasn't the same to you it mattered where it came from and uh i thought about it it's impacted me and i'd like to to try to make amends for what i did and then he wrote her a check for much much more she didn't say how much than Mm. she had originally gotten but uh it's a great book it powerfully demonstrates that and I know this doesn't fit the economic view of things, but that every dollar is not created equal, that they come with intents, and that those intents can be felt uh, years, months later, in secondary effects that if you were just to go, well, $50,000, that's X amount of wells, that's X amount of food, like Mm -hmm. we definitely need that. Uh, Or if you're in a business, you go, well, he's offering that money even though he technically can't afford that thing that he's gonna buy, like a dollar's a dollar, and he said he wants to give it to me. Uh, she, She powerfully with anecdotes illustrates that uh, you can get more, there is enough, there is abundance. and if you take less today, share more today, it comes back. Hmm. Uh, so it's 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 a cool book. It definitely inspired me to uh, to think differently about the way that I have given money in the past. Yeah. Yeah, because I've I've just written big numbers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not been, you know. I I feel like I I need to participate. More. I'm doing this from a philosophically <laughs> rational point of view. That's exactly where it's been. It's like you know, if I do this, I am I'm whatever morally clear. Like this is this is guilt money. I'm not greedy. Yes, exactly. Interesting. So check it out. It's a good book. I recommend it. Cool. What were you saying before that? That reminded me of that. You were saying of the people who killed themselves. The people who killed themselves. Right? Yeah. So this is a tangent related to that. I don't know if you have anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I mean that Well, that that story just made me uh, – It's this book was good because it really it, – it shows you some of the poorest of the poor and it disrupts the scarcity mindset, right? Which is if – yeah, which is I need this job so badly that rather than quit, I'll just kill myself. And it's almost like if these people had had an ability to interact or to become conscious of the poorest people in India yeah. – They wouldn't have killed themselves yeah they would have seen the the rich possibilities that life has even when you don't have a lot and like not only would might they have lived there they might have opened up in, in other ways
1: so yeah that's why I wanted to bring it up yeah just if anyone's listening or watching and is in a down spot to it's less inescapable than you may imagine kind of related I think this is more of a interesting political philosophical discussion the reason that this culture for this company was so terrible is actually not because workers don't have rights in France. It's because they have so many rights. Mm. And so you can't fire someone because if you fire them, apparently there's just an exorbitant amount of severance. So the reason, and this is not justifying what they did, what they did is terrible, but the reason they did it was because they were hoping people would quit Uh. because if you quit, you don't get your severance. So they're saying this is so punitive to fire these people that we'll just try to create a culture that makes them leave voluntarily. And I think that's an interesting thing to think about because a lot of times I see people critiquing the current system of the U.S. saying we should change this, we should be more libertarian, we should be more socialist, whatever it is, you know, both sides. And I think people should maybe just recognize that these systems are complicated and there's a lot of second and third order effects to the changes you want. So. Public health care for everyone. I, I'm totally game in theory. What does that mean? One hospital per city? What mm-hmm. will the quality of the healthcare be? Et cetera. And I don't want to dwell on it, but I just think it's interesting to me, and I think maybe interesting to other people. These suicides happened because the government of France says if you fire someone, you have to give them a bunch of money. Which and these people a different incentive, yeah. had where they went, Okay, well we're just gonna try to get them to quit. Mm-hmm. I'm not justifying what they did. I'm just pointing out that sometimes <laughs> they're you're, you don't get the results you're hoping for when you make systemic
2: changes to governments. Interesting. Do you have any idea what the toxicity was, either you or Justin? Like, I'd be super curious. Like what, what they were doing? Yeah. How, I don't how know. How do you get 30? I guess it could well, be I read. Well,
1: like I read, so I read about, so this, again, I read the comments of the article, right? So these are not the people who killed themselves, obviously, but they're people from France or from other places who dealt with this, and they say that a lot of times it'll be emotional abuse, Like, you suck at this, blah, 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 or it'll just be give them no work at all. And one guy was saying, I had nothing to do for eight hours a day, and I've never been so depressed. You think it's going to be awesome? Because, oh, I play on Uh the internet, and that's fun for three days. He says, when they took me from having a call, because he's customer service, a call every 10 minutes or so, to three calls a day that were 10 minutes long, and then seven and a half hours of doing nothing, I've never entered into such a
2: depression. Wow. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. I'd be really fascinated because obviously, the, you know, I would just like to know what more about doing? that. What? Because it does, if, if, if this is what you need to do to get a higher percentage of people to kill themselves, the inverse the of that yeah. <laughs> would, would be something that could imaginably take people out of a depression. Yeah. Or, so I'll
1: tell you, the, the inverse from what I could gather is two things. One, having a community and a team that you like, having a boss that treats you well and then coworkers that you enjoy spending time with mm-hmm. and work that you find rewarding and meaningful. So yeah. the worst thing actually isn't doing. And I've done this, actually. It's not doing manual labor. It's doing nothing. It's being forced to sit in a wall and stare
2: at a wall for eight hours. I mean, solitary is within jail. That's the punishment yeah. you give to someone yeah. in jail. No,
1: I landscaped. And it's not the funnest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. A bee stung me in the eye. I had a lot of calluses <laughs> and, and cuts, but time does go. And there was mm-hmm. one other guy I worked with and I like talking to him. And yeah, that's better. Than if I had to sit in the truck alone while he did the landscaping, yeah, and just be alone for eight hours. So yeah, I think that's that's the the key to having a good job. Appears to be work with people you like and do something where you enjoy what you do and you like the cause that you're working towards. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you're a carpenter because you like working with your hands and you can be proud of the stuff you create afterwards, that's actually going to make you really happy.
2: Relative to if you like working
1: with your hands, but you try to go be an investment banker because it makes more money,
2: yeah, you'll hate it. Well, dude, speaking of second-order effects, that's one of the things that this Soul of Money book talks about is it talks about Live Aid. It's like we all got together, and we had a concert, and we raised $50 million, cause, and we dumped it on Ethiopia. Here's stuff. And then I came back to Ethiopia, whatever, six, seven years later, and nothing had changed. Mm. Like, in fact, if, if, according to this woman, the only thing that had changed is that people felt helpless. They felt like unless we get another handout, we're doomed. Uh, And so what she advocates for – and I think it's – you can – the microcosm is the family unit. Like if you just give your kid $10 million, you may cripple him. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But if you can instead uh, offer opportunities in which this person can learn, develop skills, succeed, get their hand held at the beginning and then taken away and then Mm -hmm. with a little bit more coaching – that's the type of person that becomes self-sufficient. You want to help them be the guy that
1: says, "I did this all myself," while growing up in an upper middle-class society <laughs> with good public schools and good roads. Yeah. That's what you're trying to I built this from the ground up. Once I was carried to the finish line. Yeah, yeah. That's
2: what you're trying to create. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's interesting she talks about so she goes to Ethiopia and and what can we do here? And a lot of the people that wind up making the biggest impact are those that then start micro charities within their own country. And so, that you know, the Grameen Bank, which was a guy, um, I believe his name is Yusuf Muhammad or Muhammad, I don't know his name, who started doing micro loans to women so that they could start uh, sewing or whatever mm-hmm. little thing they wanted to do. When these people got involved and were trying to help other people. But not in a way that was with handout, with a way mm. that was like, no, you got to pay me back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they actually did better sure. than than strict. Oh, here's a gift. I'll see you never. You know what I mean? Which is kind of like the deadbeat dad that shows up. You know, he's yeah. built this giant business. He shows up. He gives you a ton of money and then disappears for five years. Like that person is going to struggle more than someone who had a middle class parent that participated yeah. with them. And I thought that that was really interesting and i do think the caveat there is that there are certainly things and i think charity water falls into this like just help people get water <laughs> you know what i mean like whether or not they build the well i think that can be valuable but if you are starving to death or don't have oxygen or water or something mm-hmm. like that uh keeping you alive can be <laughs> can be a valuable sure. thing to do well they
1: said that one of the most beneficial charities per dollar is a charity that cures parasites yep because It doesn't fix your hunger. It -hmm. doesn't give you money. But what it does, which I have never thought of, is when you're a kid in school in Africa and you get a parasite that takes you out for a couple months, you're behind forever. Mm -hmm. Basically, you fall behind that year and then your grades aren't good. You have to get held back or you're behind the next year. And they said that, that by just giving people these... Quick cures that we have in America, thirty cent pills, yeah, for that make the parasites die, so the kid can stay in school. That has a tremendous trickle down effect in his life, mm-hmm. which is interesting because you're just to- enabling him to learn and function. So yeah. yeah, curing that kind of stuff, taking care of the problems that that knock out your ability to. Basically fend for yourself or learn to fend for yourself. Yeah. That's the most helpful stuff.
2: I think that's uh William McCaskill. I think it's doing good better. It's the book on effective altruism where he talks about all these different oh, things. Oh, I thought the book was just called effective it altruism. It might be effective. I thought it was doing good better. I believe it's it William might be. McCaskill. I I I don't remember it's been a year plus since I've read it. But yeah, no, that that's struck me as well. Yeah. Just like, ah, interesting. Like enabling people to help themselves. And then of course this is the difficulty of being a parent, which is when do I step in and bail this kid out? And when do I, you know? You know what what kind (laughs) of happened to me? I got mono. I don't know if you know this, I got mono in
1: high school and they give you, they say, here's the curriculum, teach yourself. But I had mono, I was completely couch ridden, right? So I get back and, you know, I, I managed to catch up in every subject except for physics. And in physics, I take a test. I was an A student. I take a yeah. test and I fail it, I think, just straight up F it. And the teacher goes, listen, I get it. You tried to teach yourself for a month about these complicated things. I'm gonna give you a retest, different questions, but same concepts a week later, okay? It's like, okay, cool, yeah, I got this. So I stay after school, because I still have to do my regular class. Take it again, see something, like C minus. <laughs> and i only ever gotten A's. And she just pulls me aside. She goes, listen, I've had health issues. I'm just gonna, you get a zero out of zero on this. It's not gonna affect your grade. Just start attending class again and learn from me Uh because you clearly can't teach yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I had a similar thing. If I had had a less understanding teacher, that was my senior year, so I was probably already in college, but you can imagine that happens your sophomore or junior year, less understanding teacher. I would have been screwed. I could not possibly teach myself that stuff for some reason.
2: And well, then it's tough. And then you hear these stories, and I believe them, of teachers who go super hard on people who uh, the hardest teacher they ever had who doesn't take it they get sick and they say no work anyway Oh yeah but whatever. i was a nerd dude i was sitting <laughs> i was sitting at the front of the class taking note like oh i'm not saying that that i believe you when
1: you say that was appropriate for you the the difficult oh, yeah i'm saying i think she the reason she did that is because prior to that i had aced everything and was a loser yeah, <laughs> i was yeah, just yeah, sitting yeah. there in the front with glasses
2: and Big eyes excited about physics. So I think she's like, Yeah, I don't need to
1: tough love this kid. Yeah, that's the
2: difficult question. And I think you can be in, you can have the same situation with two different people with two different backgrounds. You go, No, this one needs. like be told to buckle down and this one needs a break and that's I think what's tough about not just charity but being a parent parenting dude parenting is so hard (laughs) I've not been a parent but the older I get the more I realize it's so hard well what you do for like for me my parents gave me such a long leash because I was like I'm going to sleep at Ben's we're going to go play Risk and we would stay up all night and play Play Risk Risk. yeah (laughs) (laughs) and so I'm 17, 18 and then my brother and sister are younger like I'm going to go have a sleepover and what do you know they're drinking (laughs) and and not that drinking is the worst thing in the world and kids survive that phase but you could do the same exact thing sure. with two different people and get two wildly different results. Sure. I paved such an easy path for my brother and sister. Yeah, yeah. They had such a long leash of trust to go on because I did nothing. <laughs> and then they ruined it. Lucky nobody came after that. Yeah, f- <laughs> That's you- all I got, man. That's it. We've exhausted my list. All right, let's do uh, let's do whatever Justin brings.
3: Cool. First Justin, thing- bring the heat, bud. First thing up is using AI to talk to animals
1: like Ooh. Dr. Middle
3: oh how Um, do we do that so basically uh right now researchers from mit and google are applying ai right now to uh figure out how to how to decode like ancient human scripts so um the precursor to hebrew and then something called linear b oh that's uh, fascinating yeah so basically what it does is the ai will search text to see how often a certain word appears next to every other word and then use patterns in a multi-dimensional parameter space to kind of, like, figure out where those words lie in meaning. That's incredible. Why does that help talk to animals? So, so, go ahead. Yeah, so what's going to happen is um, they're hypothetically imagining, like, for example, whales. Their songs, uh, if they communicate in a word-like structure, then you can use the algorithm to decode the sounds they make and then figure out what each sound means in, like, this multi-dimensional space and then kind of learn to define them
2: interesting so I'll give you an example your dog whimpers yeah yeah. your dog versus your dog whimper growls it's like you can intuit that paired in certain ways these have different meanings sure and so they're applying it I guess to human languages and then the question is, but you'll be able to you'll be able to communicate with that
1: animal at the same level that an animal can communicate well that's not that helpful
2: still cool man what I need to do is be like listen (laughs) I know you want to get pet don't (laughs)
1: jump I will pet you on the ground but that's not what a dog can do is don't do this. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I do like this. I'm scared. So
2: that's what you could communicate. I can already communicate that to my dog. <laughs> well, I guess what it allows you to do is, is a deeper understanding of your animal. Like as as effectively as animals can communicate with one another, yeah. they'll be able to communicate with you. I need to up my dog's ability
1: to communicate.
2: <laughs> we need a neural link better than other animal. dogs. That's yeah. what I thought we were doing.
1: <laughs> Listen, it's a podcast. It's going to end at three. Okay. We're going to go for a real long walk. I just need you to calm down. Shut up for 45 That's minutes. what I
2: need. That's what I need. Yeah, I don't think that's coming. I think that's fascinating because I don't know have you what was that the Benedict Cumberbatch movie where they they crack the do you know what I'm talking about the imitation game where it builds this giant oh, yeah, one yeah. Of the, pre, the, like the giant one. first computers and I don't know if it was true or just from the movie but they got it because everything said Heil Hitler every single thing signed off with these phrase this phrase Heil Hitler so they were able to be like, we know some of the letters. You know what I mean? Wow! And it was it's how they cracked Morse code in World War Two, right? Not Morse code. It's how they cracked the German Enigma machine. Was like this rotating, constantly changing thing that was every day different. And they had and they would put just out the things for the day. And then by the time they would crack it, it'd be three days later. So mm. they needed to crack it quickly. And one of the things that enabled them to do it quickly was like, we know a couple of letters. We <laughs> you know the like, H. We know the H's and it's the same sort of idea yeah, it took yeah. it took a machine plus human to be like wait wow. a second there's this i wonder pattern. how much hitler's ego cost <laughs> him in that war cuz how like without that would that have changed the course of the war i don't remember the movie so world war 2 is fascinating man i've heard, i've heard of, learned about it from a couple different angles they talk there's all these critical technological fronts it was fought one with the code breakers which is you know maybe that was essential two the u boats uh, there was no like radar sonar. So these U-boats were just destroying anything that we used to send to England until, and this is, there's another book that I was reading. It's on innovation. Uh, the Navy had had sonar for like 30 years. They just didn't know how to put it on a boat and use it hmm. basically. And this one guy was like, we need to use this. And I was like, no, this is a crack dream. It's never going to work. Uh, then they get it working and they're sinking U-boats left and right which completely changed. Now we can arm Britain. Now we can travel freely. Fascinating. Uh, so, and then the that same thing. was the U.S. Thing, that invented that? It was the U.S. And then they had the oh. same thing was happening with the, uh, they had better rockets. They had the V2 rocket. Mm-hmm. And eventually, somehow, I don't know the exact story, but we got the Albert Einsteins and all these other guys yeah, yeah, to yeah. just join us. And, uh, you know, they built the bomb, which which put a definite end to the war. But, yeah, there were these fascinating technological well, Front you, you, this you talk fought. about
1: this sometimes letting scientists <clears throat> pursue their passions mm. a lot. I mean, I've read a little bit because I was obsessed with Albert Einstein when I was a kid. But a lot of the scientists joined up because they thought the problem was interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, we want to help the war and this and that. But also the concept of splitting an atom was fascinating to these high, high level physicists. Yeah. And upon seeing their results, they were actually pretty aghast mm. at their involvement. But at the time, they were so excited to crack the problem that they didn't. They actually got blinded to the damage it would do. Yeah. And then once they saw it go off, they went, oh,
2: we shouldn't have opened this Pandora's yeah, box. I believe that was Robert Oppenheimer, who he sees it go off, and he's like, I have become Shiva, destroyer of worlds. Uh, <laughs> just... Oh, Einstein said it too, I think, that he
1: regretted his involvement. Yeah, it's crazy. But, but at the time, to, to our point, sonar, magnets, mm-hmm. Viagra, a lot of these things, they weren't the thing being pursued at first necessarily, or they weren't being pursued for immediate benefit. So yeah, there's just the sense of if you put innovative people together and let them run and
2: fund them, good things can happen from it. And that's what the book is about. It's, it's, it's I don't think making a terribly bold claim, but it's that you need your artists and your scientists as well as your engineers. And they need to be separate, but they need—they do need to talk on occasion. Be like, so what? Have, what have you guys been working on? Oh, yeah. sonar. Could I have some of that for my ship? Yeah. Like, uh, I think that could help us in this particular way. Uh, yeah, and it was also it, it's what started air traffic control. People were just constantly crashing, and then eventually they figured out, what if we put a tower here, and we could just signal to where everybody is, yeah. and then it cut back on on flight fatalities in a dramatic fashion. So cool stuff. Uh, Good one, Justin. Good conversation. Yeah.
3: What else we got? Next is a funny study about how research shows that men care about men's chests more than women care about <laughs> men's chests. What? I had this conversation so. the other day.
1: Wait, wait, wait! Fill me in. <laughs> yeah. I don't
3: even understand it. Okay, so for the study, uh, researchers tracked the eye movements of eighty-two heterosexual undergraduate students. They didn't say the ratio of men to women in the group, but there were men and women. Sure. And they all, heterosexual. The, yeah, all heterosexual. Yep, all heterosexual and they had to they they viewed and rated the attractiveness of three male and three female 3D models which varied in their shoulder to hip ratio and what they found is that the men dwelled longer on the chest region of the male 3D models with higher shoulder to hip ratios while women showed no difference in visual attention to the chest of any of the male models fascinating what did the women's eyes linger on um it's it basically concluded that women are indifferent to the size of a chest so let's let's just get the size of wait size of a chest what
1: i I just want to know i just want to know what did the women did the the female's eyes linger on anything but it didn't say it said
3: it's no it's sounded like they just just said
1: chest agnostic
3: yeah so yeah it said that the study showed men rate men with large upper body sizes more attractive and rate women with smaller shoulders smaller upper body more attractive while women preferred an intermediate size of shoulders for both men and women 84 people no, no, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, Charlie. 84
2: undergrads who it doesn't say... Were they rating or were they just looking?
3: They were they were rating and looking.
2: Okay. It's just <laughs> such a reach for this title. Men, women prefer, men prefer. It's probably undergrads at one college. <laughs> it's... Just, these studies are insane. Yeah. Uh, we can still talk about it. It's a fun conversation anecdotally to have, and I think it's a great jumping off point. But what is... Like, there needs to be a statistical literacy class which, which talks about this madness. Oh, that wouldn't <laughs> fix it. Well, maybe it would, you could fix it at the consumer side. The, but, yeah,
1: people just want to publish this study and have it talked about, and it's what makes their careers. So yeah. I think that they don't want to make it 5,000 people, and they don't want to make it not on 3D models but on humans. That's mm-hmm. co- that's hard. That's complicated. It takes longer. Sure. So let's go to anecdotal. The one. Well, the one I think is interesting, too, is that it's, that it's a 3D model because it reminds me a little bit of when – it's, there was a study that showed that women thought that photographs of men yeah, 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 are yeah. more attractive when the men aren't smiling. And the takeaway was women prefer men that aren't smiling, which I think is a terrible reach, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we have to be clear, women are agnostic to the chest size of 3D models. 84 women. 84 women, <laughs> 84 <laughs> women, yeah. But let's get, so yeah, that's this study says that 84 women it says less at than 84. college, because it was men. at college age,
2: are agnostic to the chest size of 3d models yeah Yeah. but so here's what i'll say that i have seen in my life if you look back on some of the iconic handsome men of our my generation Mm -hmm. the big one is brad pitt and fight club yep and he clearly was not doing a ton of bench press like and and what guys often do when they go to the gym anecdotally the first thing they want to hit is the bench well i will say brad pitt and fight club is
1: interesting to me because I think Brad Pitt's face is top face ever made by <laughs> genetics or God. So let's get, caveat that. But he, I don't think that people would have thought his body was particularly attractive in person. There's something about the magic of lighting, oil, tan, and a movie screen. Sure. Because he was actually like 155 pounds and in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying he's unattractive. He's definitely attractive. But the fact that he was the paradigm of male physique shot from a low angle. Exactly. There's so much filtering, camera angles, lighting that I actually think if you just saw him walking around with a different face, because again, his face is going to get (laughs) you. I don't think that you would have done a double take necessarily if he just walked down the street, even if he walked down the beach shirtless, you'd be like, oh, that's a fit guy. Sure. But you wouldn't go, oh my God, that's the best fit dude I've ever seen. So I think, yeah, even that. That
2: movie is is funny because what you see on the movie screen is not what you would see in real life Well, let's let's go anecdotally on this one. Obviously not a study has been done. How important have you do you think? Uh, physical fitness and we can go from let's not say that uh, like going from obesity to fit But let's just say not muscular too muscular mm-hmm. is when it comes to being rated on average more attractive by most women where does that fit in the scheme of things that men might be working on in order to become more attractive men you, might be working on you could get a cool haircut you could you could buy cool clothes you could go to the gym yeah. you could become funnier you could uh start an interesting business you could get a puppy you could yeah, you know, yeah. so there's a lot of things that guys do where do you think that, i think style is going to carry you more than muscles mm-hmm. honestly i think if you're now
1: i think that being heavy set might be harder to overcome i don't know mm-hmm. um i've been skinny and i've looked like what I look like now I've never been super heavy so I don't know I can't speak to it but certainly I think in hindsight the difference between being skinny versus being in more muscular shape is just dress better yeah so yeah that's my that's my experience the one thing I have got to give some credit to is height Mm -hmm. I think I think that uh, women when women say on their dating profiles you have to be blah 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 height or I'm not interested
2: you take him at the word (laughs) that's hard that's hard to over that's that sucks that's tough you know what i mean i actually think that's probably more important to women than chest size i agree we've talked about this before i think there's only a few categories in which you are still allowed to just be verbally and obviously discriminatory and i don't necessarily mean discrimination in a bad way you're just allowed to say i don't like this Mm -hmm. like not interested uh if somebody if some dude's profile said like if you're above this weight don't even contact me. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That guy you're, would be. If you lay 165 <laughs> or over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're that, dead. That, you don't exist to me. Yeah,
1: that, that guy, guy would be lambasted. Exactly. But when a, when a woman's like, hey, if you're not 5'11 or. Not or 6 foot tall or yeah.
2: above. Yeah. That's just allowed. And I think that uh, I think that it is. I don't know that it should be uh, lambasted or shame, but I think that it's when weird, I see It's it,
1: weird that we don't, given that we do lambast and shame other stuff. Exactly. Uh, Especially because it's the least in your control. Yes. Like if, we, if we're not going to weight shame,
2: which is certainly more in your control than height, it seems weird that we can publicly height shame. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. But even beyond that, I would also agree with your assessment that uh, that is a thing when I would talk to guys of different things and what they're struggling with in their relationships – uh that was the one that you know i've only been my height for as long as i've been through puberty but that was the one that the shorter guys would be like dude this is hard yeah and i had to take them at their word and that doesn't mean that you're doomed you know what i mean no no i know a guy i know a guy
1: who's a short asian and he has amazing fashion he's in great shape he's got a cool tattoo and when he enters a bar he definitely gets like close to if not the same amount of attention as a taller muscular guy does you know he's he's definitely optimized
2: himself very very well and he draws eyes mm-hmm. so it's definitely not a death knell we're not saying that it's not overcomable i think that one of the things where it does become more difficult i guess it's not necessarily but on dating apps where height is a filter where people can increasingly be like oh if you're not christian i'm not interested or mm-hmm. if you're not this height i'm not interested in there are dating apps where they have a, a place to input height yeah and i think increasingly you're going to see ai and uh, even just user-generated options, to completely exclude swaths of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's No, this where guy it probably... only saw at a bar.
1: But I do remember, he was like a 5'7 Asian, and we went out, and I remember looking at him being like, damn, man, you look good. I'm mm-hmm. jealous of how you look right now. You had better style than me, better haircut. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely it's definitely not not um, a make-or-break thing, I think. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying, I think in the world of chest size, not mattering at all. That's the one thing where when guys are like, yeah, my life's harder because I'm 5'4", so, I go. Yeah.
2: I'm let, gonna I'm gonna trust you on that. Let I, me ask you this: I don't know the answer. I have some thoughts. I'm looking at Harry Styles for a breakdown. Mm-hmm. He's cool, man. The the guy is legit cool, but he's very handsome mm-hmm. and and, as, very as, as, and very famous. And very famous, but especially famous. which, by the way, if you had to maximize your
1: chest size and your fame, <laughs> and your only goal is to do
2: well with the opposite sex, go fame. <laughs> Definitely go fame. So he. I I do believe that uh, all different types can become charismatic but his style is this often more subdued slow Mm -hmm. which plays very well with how attractive he is sure we have two friends who are like that and they're both Mm -hmm. incredibly good looking so it's uh, I'm 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 not sure how to approach this video because i think more than almost anyone i've ever done he does he's got something that's cool man yeah like he just has a swagger that comes i think from being the man ever since you were in middle school yeah <laughs> two year lost drop. his virginity
1: it was either from a teacher or a friend's mom something insane at a very yeah, young age he's
2: just he's just always been in demand and i don't think it occurs to him that he needs to impress anyone ever yeah uh which is palpable but he's also super freaking handsome and i wonder when i put it on when i don't watch the screen. He f- sounds less charismatic than say someone who's even like a rock or Kevin Hart who are just big, loud, funny, cracking yeah. jokes. He's way more subdued. So how do I – where can you think, that Can fit? you think
1: of any examples in your own life or of celebrities who act similarly, get good results but aren't super handsome? Because uh,
2: if so, then I think what he's doing is probably good. I mean, he reminds me a bit of Ryan Gosling, who has that slow cadence and then the once and every while. Not a super helpful example in terms of sex appeal or lack of sex appeal. He reminds me of uh, everyone that he reminds me of is attractive, Yeah, so I'll think about it more.
1: How to be charismatic if you're
2: really good looking. So I was going to make a video. Yeah, that video will bomb. I was going to – I think I might just say it, and the other thing is it's also some of the least – useful charisma advice because it comes down to the idea of doing cool versus being cool. Hmm. And you you could do some cool stuff. You could dress cool and wear rings and you can do that. He also is. (laughs) Like his, his mode of being, the speed at which he reacts to other people, it's just so very obviously on his own time, which is one of the hardest pieces of advice to internalize, which is uh, be your own like locus of attention without being a dick to anybody. Uh, he is. He seems to be immune from embarrassment when a- when Ellen, for instance, has him play a prank on the pizza guy. He just does not seem to feel embarrassment as he acts like a complete idiot. Uh, nor does he seem to need to ham it up. He just is funny and cool so this video could be the lamest video <laughs> ever that just sounds like this harry styles like he's so cool there's he's nothing the, we, there's nothing nms can do he's the best <laughs> but uh
1: sounds interesting i'd like to watch the clips that you're describing he's a cool dude man i don't know what to tell you he's got it that's surprising yeah it's not what i think of when i think of harry styles i think of like boy band guy he's got it he's got it i'll take you at your word yeah i'm surprised I know nothing about
2: him. I wouldn't have guessed that based yeah. on the limited stuff I've seen from him. It's also tough to gla- to grab like five second moments because it's it's a vibe. It's the way that he is like when he's quiet in the room. And then he – and this is a point that I can make. He'll just explode onto the scene. Like he'll have done nothing, 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 nothing. And then in a quick swift movement and a quick joke, like now all of a sudden he's captured attention. And then he'll just sit for a while. <laughs> uh, it's – he, he moves at his self-set pace, which is the one point that I think I can definitely make about him that is perhaps more applicable to most people. I don't know. What
1: else we got? If anyone listening thinks that's interesting or not, let <laughs> yeah. us know in the
2: comments. Yeah. I may not If do you it. have a better title than How to Be Charismatic when you're if really, you guys really want good to vote, I'll, I'll give you guys a vote. I wasn't so... It was uh, Dr. Phil. That one is actually looking a little bit harder. I'll be honest. Sometimes Dr. Phil... It does things that I really don't advise doing uh, and it seems like it's for television like yeah. he'll get into spats and fights with these 13 year old girls that, you know the dominance matches that don't seem like the best way to break through and help someone mm-hmm. uh, So, and I don't really want to I don't know. It's what goes on behind the scenes. How? Yeah, yeah. Also, do you want to watch fifty hours of Doctor Phil? It's a lot. Yeah. So that's one that I was thinking of. John Stewart uh, dismantling Crossfire. This was many years ago, mm-hmm. where he basically <laughs> he put them out of business. Uh, the I just looked. The interview was in October of 2014. In January, they shut down Crossfire, and like the guy who did it cited John Stewart has been like he was right about the show. It's lame. <laughs> wow. So he he just ended that.
1: You should include that in the video if you do yeah. it. I didn't know that. Yeah. I remember uh, the moment. I remember the clip.
2: So it, t- it took like two months for them to be off the air after Jeez. that. Uh, and they came back a couple years later. So that was the one. So it was Harry, Dr. Phil, that one. Jamie Foxx was another hmm. one. And he's just he's genuinely just, he's, he's also got it. He's yeah. funny, outgoing, can tell a story like crazy. So if any of those people, vote for them in the comments if you're watching the YouTube below. Or if you have notebook. a better idea yeah let us know if you have better that's or why
1: th- we did Peaky Blinders we did Peaky Blinders because people just kept commenting <laughs> it and they kept getting 700 upvotes yeah square. all right I'm gonna watch this show there now. must be something to this <laughs> there must be something to Peaky Blinders
3: yeah what else we got next is a fan question hello hi fans so the first one is from Fernanda from Brazil Fernandinho is it
2: your Fernanda I don't think so <laughs>
3: so she says i
2: did have a moment of like (gasps) Fernandinha!
1: oh my god Fernanda! i haven't spoken to you in so long
3: (laughs) she says i'm a doctor but what i really wanted to be back in high school was a writer journalist my parents pushed me towards medicine because my father's a doctor and because here in brazil job stability is very hard to achieve they also thought that pursuing journalism would be a waste of my good grades but for some time now i've been writing too for science magazines and i love it most people around me support it and seem to think it's a cool side gig to have but when i talk about leaving medicine to pursue a full-time writing career they seem to think i'm out of my mind there is a prestige around the medical profession that i find to be unhealthy especially in underdeveloped countries where people have more respect towards doctors than sometimes ceos for example with huge Mm. businesses and overall more impact in the world do you think you can change people's mentalities about career prestige and if so how
1: can i go Sure. So, I, so the first thing I would say is I thought there was a fascinating quote when I was in investment banking, which is a very prestigious job, in quotes, was when you want intelligent people to do something <laughs> that's not good for them, bait the hook with prestige. So in any decision, I would say the best thing to do is go completely prestige agnostic and throw it out.
2: Yeah, so, assume, that, assume that nobody
1: was going to be proud of exactly. it Exactly. Because it won't make you feel good that they are. Exactly. So don't run from something because it's prestigious. I'm not saying prestige is bad but also don't do anything because it's prestigious. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you wanna be a writer, but it's less prestigious than being a doctor, I say, go for it. Yeah, It might make less money, but if you don't care about that, then yeah, do what you care about.
2: So I have It's a, your life also, this yeah. is the
1: other thing. I actually had a fascinating thing. My, my dad, who loves our company now, initially was very skeptical and wanted to talk me out of starting this business to stay in private equity where it was guaranteed I'd make millions of dollars. But what I realized in talking to him, he didn't have to go to the office every day for 14 hours. He could just tell his son to go do the (laughs) job and then his son would be wealthy and great. There'd be no monetary stress. And if I ever had a family, like it came from love. He wasn't expecting to see a dime from me. But when it's not you, it's so easy to tell the person, go do something you don't enjoy, right? So whoever you're talking to that thinks you should be a doctor does not have to go to the hospital or does not have to see patients, does not have to have the day-to-day, minute-to-minute, every single day experience that you don't enjoy as much as writing. So, yeah, they shouldn't get a vote. You're the one that has to do your job every day. And so you should do whatever you want. And if you want to make less money
2: because you like writing, do that. Yeah, I have I have a lot of reactions to this. One of them is, I think as you correctly noted, that – uh brazil economically you could, i don't know how many years but at least pre- prestige is maybe 20 years behind the u.s maybe 30 uh doctors were all the rage in the 80s everybody needed to be a doctor mm-hmm. and that has dipped you know yeah, that's it's still a good has, job it's still a prestigious still, job yeah but, but it's not it's not investment banker it's not like tech the, ceo yes it's as not the money most. exactly well it's
1: cultural too different different cultures <laughs> different ethnicities i think have different prestige
2: rankings for jobs i think you're going to see in the next twenty years in Brazil, the doctors dip just like they did in the United States of America, and sure. CEOs and tech, as, CEOs, will and tech go up. CEOs go up. So, yes. if you're chasing prestige, you're actually, in my opinion, by it, like you shouldn't chase prestige. Pretend that you were going to. This is not a good long-term decision. Uh, you're going to wind up being a doctor that is mid tier if the US is any sort of para- like uh, paradigm for how these sorts of things are going with the, the direction the economy sure, is taking. But you would still agree to just be prestige agnostic anyway. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah I just think that's funny that you know my mom wanted me to, my mom was a nurse and she always looked up to the doctors. She thought they were so and she wanted me to be a doctor uh, for that reason. Luckily didn't push me terribly mm-hmm. hard, but I just think it's interesting that the world that our parents grew up in what was so you know, hip to them, what was the bee's knees <laughs> to our parents. It's like, you guys are 30 years behind. Even if I did care about prestige, you're wrong about this. It's sure. going to be the finance guys, it's going to be the tech guys or, or girls. Um, so the second thing to just pile on to what Bennett had said, uh, go without prestige. And then what you, I think, will find, Tim Ferriss quote, uh, people are very quick to get in your way before you've started moving. When you're deliberating and on the fence, everyone has a loud opinion. Once you start moving, people get out of the way. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. So when they sense that you're uncertain and you could still be a doctor, this is when the, the cries to not leave will be the loudest. But if you dive in and go, up, oh, too late. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they just get out of the way as they would for, you know, somebody else who had already chosen to be a journalist of some kind. Yeah. As soon as we were in Brazil,
1: my dad was supportive every step of the way. Because yeah. it's, okay, you're doing this, you know. Mm-hmm. The other thing, I think the question was – how do I get people to care less about the prestige of my job? Yeah, I would also not worry about that. I would, I would not try to convince other people that you're making the right decisions in your life. Because that is going to be a lot of energy, a lot of spinning wheels for potentially not a lot of change. Sure. I try not to control other people's minds so much these days. And so... I'm sure I had people who thought I was an idiot for leaving finance. I'm actually positive there were some guys in my fraternity who I wasn't super close to, who talked shit on me when I left. But so be it. I wasn't that close to them to begin with. All my closest friends, super supportive today, you Mm -hmm. know? And some of them still thought I was crazy. But they just said, that's my crazy friend, Ben. He's still my friend, you know? So I actually think, do it for you. Throw away prestige. (laughs) Don't worry about other people thinking it's the right or wrong decision. And just think about what do you value? Do you value income? Do you value freedom of time? Do you value doing something you care about? Mm -hmm. Write down all the things you value, score it out of 10, and then go do the thing that is best for you. You're the only one who is going to do this every day. Your friends won't.
2: They'll do their jobs. So, and here's just one last thing. How do you talk about it? Let's say you decide to be the the journalist, Mm -hmm. and you still have to interact with these people who think this is a terrible idea.
1: I find people are actually going to quickly warm up to you and actually like you. When you are a journalist and you love writing, or you are a fictional writer, whatever you wanna write about, and you love it, very quickly after you get used to talking about it and you're no longer projecting that you might regret your decision or that you're scared, people will be way more fascinated than when you begrudgingly share that you're a doctor because you're not passionate about it. And at the end of the day, that's all people care about is what you're projecting about yourself. So when I was an investment banker and I hated it, I got much worse reactions from people than when I met people and I
2: did something I cared about.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: When it comes to your parents, one thing that I would consider is that you guys may in fact agree if you get down to values, may still disagree, but you can ask them, look, look I'm going to do this. What is what is it about being a doctor that you most value? And let them tell you and listen, and I'm, I'm, I assume it has some money. It's a good job. You're going to help a lot of people. Uh, you'll be stable if you have a family. This is very important. It's secure. It's all these that and the other things and go Okay, good news is I also want a lot of those things, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know what I mean? I'm not running away from any of those. I would like to earn a decent income, Uh, but the one thing that you didn't mention in there which is uh, paramount importance to me is my happiness, (laughs) happiness, (laughs) and so I want all of those things, but I have to be happy as well. I think we can agree because if I got all of those and I was miserable, I don't think you'd want that for me either. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, you know, walk through. Okay, journalist. yes, I'm gonna make less money, yes, or, the, or this, but I, it'll be enough and I'll be happy and I got these things and push comes to shove. well, you can always say, I think it's in a, a video that we made a long time ago which is, well, the good news is, you know, if somebody else is yeah, — this is what I would do. good news is you get to make all the decisions from you, for you and I get to make the decisions for me because I think if the situations were reversed, we'd both be unhappy which is a nice way of throwing some shade and being like, look, if I had to follow your stupid prestigious path, (laughs) I'd be miserable. But Mm -hmm. you don't hear me yelling at you that you need to change your job and go do something else. Yeah. Well, you (laughs) you said something interesting too, which I think is important, is you can also
1: build a bridge from where they are to where you are. Mm -hmm. Because for instance, I, I don't know, but I would assume that they maybe don't have the same perception of your experience as a doctor and your experience as a writer. I know for myself, i went into investment banking voluntarily then i read a book about entrepreneurship and my dreams changed when i was talking to people they weren't in my brain (laughs) for that change so they don't know the reasons that i wanted to be an entrepreneur so with my friends with my dad once i had that conversation of explaining listen i totally get everything you're saying let me walk you through why my mind has changed people are much more receptive they're much Mm -hmm. more supportive they're just not necessarily there for the journey, right? They're, to the point we are talking about earlier, their camera is only on their stuff. So they weren't there in your brain for all the new information you have mm-hmm. acquired, which could include how much you hate your current job. It can include the change of your dreams or goals. So yeah, you can, a lot of times, just building a bridge, pacing the reality is really important.
2: Good luck, go do what you like, and do it well. Don't be a doctor.
0: Unless you like being a doctor.
2: And if you like being a doctor, Be a doctor. Be a damn good doctor. Yeah, I think that's an ex. I have. I think it's an excellent job for for those who are interested. I think it's a terrible job for people who don't want to be. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's one of those jobs that gets so many kids pushed by their parents. Yeah. Same thing with lawyer. Like then you just get these people that are dead on the inside doing No, but my friend, I mean, listen,
1: just to make it super (laughs) close to clear, we're not anti-doctor. My friend is an orthopedic surgeon and he loves it. He Mm -hmm. finds it fascinating. He works in the ER repairing jaws from gunshot wounds. He loves to talk about it. I only understand like a third of the words he uses (laughs) because he's so deep in it that he'll talk about the specific names for every tooth. He should still be a doctor or Mm -hmm. a dentist or whatever you want to call it. So yeah, it's not the profession that's the problem. It's just doing
3: anything that you're passionless about that you don't like isn't worth it. Sure. What else? next is from nick he says he's a it's a first question from a longtime listener hi nick um so you guys have shared thoughts on codependent and open relationships as well as addictions my impression is that you guys define a codependent relationship as any relationship where the partners are addicted to each other i'm not sure why this is bad if they are compatible can you guys clearly define the difference between a healthy loving relationship and a codependent one and then there's a part two after this sure sure great question first of all me or you no go ahead so this
2: is one of the difficult things when I make videos for the channel is that when I step back and I go philosophizing, what would pure love look like? I go it would look like pure acceptance and a non-neediness and and a a desire for what is best for the individual even if it meant a separation, right? So uh, the, the, the type of love that uh, perhaps moms need to have on the day that they drop their kid off on the college on the other side of the nation, but not the one that goes, no, no, you got to stay here in our small town, <laughs> Yeah. right? Uh, so that's the type of love that, that I would say is healthy, and it comes from an understanding that you will not be able to be together forever necessarily, and so the codependent relationship— can be very similar to that with one exception that there's a top priority and it's that you can't leave me, (laughs) you know, like, uh, you need to stay around, be together because you are my happiness. Uh, And so that, to me, is the fundamental difference. I think, quite frankly, all of the secondary stuff in that codependent relationship looks a lot like the pure love relationship Mm -hmm. except that top priority of I need you uh, in in the healthy relationship is subbed out for I accept and want what is best for you. That's that's the biggest difference, even if it means we never speak again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not my happiness. You're part of it. Anything else? That, so that's that's how I would define no, it.
1: Yeah, and I think there's degrees, first of all. I don't think every <clears throat> codependent relationship is unhappy. I think probably totally. a lot of happy relationships are codependent. So I should get that out there. I, I think that there's degrees of this. And so, for instance, if you are in a relationship where you love spending time with each other, The other person would be a 10 out of 10 happy if they went for one week with their friends on a fishing trip or whatever it might be. And you are incapable of letting them go do that because you have an emotional anxiety or depression or whatever when they leave. Now you are not allowing this person to do what makes them happy because of your negative emotions from their lack, that absence. Mm -hmm. That's the addiction part. Their absence for a week causes such insane insane causes such intense negative emotions in you that you can't allow them to go do something that they will enjoy that's the downside of the codependence that's the downside of the addiction
2: that's a great point that that's almost and i should have included this because that that is really one of the defining features of an addiction which is it is the strongest in its lack so like i would say that many of my friendships are not codependent because while i love having my friends here when they leave i do not long for or miss them terribly love to talk to them let's say exactly i'd love to have them here i would love for this guy
1: to come back my life's better when this person's around Mm -hmm. but i'm not in pain from their
2: absence yes it's just that i would prefer it because of its upside and many of my romantic relationships have been i mean not not you're gone for a day but it's painful if I don't see you for a month that hurts that that gives me anxiety prior to and and it's romanticized Mm -hmm. is the other thing and that's that's how we define our love in many cases I miss you so much I can't live without you is what we say and we go true love right there and I think as Ben points to that creates so many issues where not only can't you separate from the person but you stop being the guy who wants to go on the fishing trip because he reciprocates that feeling goes I don't really want to go no, it's okay because he can sense that she's going to be so nervous and he loves her and he doesn't want her to feel that. So now he isn't being him. Yeah, when
1: you see a relationship be controlling, when you see the other person actively trying to prevent their partner from doing something that their partner would like, that is a function of the fact that it's addictive and codependent. And I think yeah. in in a relationship that didn't have that as much because I actually do genuinely think that most sexual or romantic relationships will have a
2: Degree. <laughs> some some degree of
1: codependence and addiction. Uh, I haven't seen one that is perfectly without it, and I think that's fine because you can still have a good relationship with it. But to to the extent that you have more of that, is, you'll see a more controlling relationship.
2: And it can be not even overt. You, I think this is, this is one of the things is you don't even recognize that you're the one who said, I don't want to go fishing because you intuited so reflexively that that was going to upset yeah. them to the degree that... One of, one of the signs of codependency is you lose track of your own desires. Yep. Uh, you predict fights, yep. you, you, you get guilty about
1: something you haven't done yet because you know it'll upset the person, but you, what you're doing isn't wrong. Like, obviously, if you cheat, you know it's gonna upset the person. You shouldn't do that. That's bad. But taking a night with your friends, taking a trip for a week with your family, mm-hmm. these things that shouldn't upset someone, but you sense
2: that they will. And so because of that, you subvert your own desires they don't even occur consciously to you. All of a sudden, it's such a long trip. I don't even want to go. What I would say would be more healthy in that scenario would be, oh, I'm completely and totally aware of my desire. I'm perhaps completely aware that this person doesn't want to go. A healthier thing is I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to say it, but I'm not going to uh, cut my own desire off at its ankles. I'm going to be an independently functioning person who negotiates and compromises with another person or if you're me compromises <laughs> not as much yeah uh, just does i mostly just do what i want no or at least have it be an overt mm-hmm. agreement there's a really good yeah. book i like
1: called no more mr nice guy uh, or no more mr nice guys i don't remember the exact title but it talks about how in relationships there are these covert contracts where you would skip a trip because you think a person is going to be upset, and then you would expect some sort of reciprocation from them. Like for that week, they're extra nice to you. Oh, they just love you because you didn't go to now that. Now you trip. love me you,
2: sure. forever. You love me forever because I didn't do the thing that was gonna that I wanted sad. to do or whatever. Yeah.
1: And it, and it's happening so much subconsciously. And so I think that book is really good because for me it highlighted the importance of just having the overt conversation, whatever it is. Of I'd like to do this thing. Well, it would upset me if you did. Okay, then I won't. For you, I will sacrifice and at least have that conversation above the water you Mm -hmm. know instead of having it be this thing that doesn't get voiced that gets unspoken yeah so no relationship is going to be perfect no relationship is going to be perfectly unaddicted this is not a critique of every codependent relationship but i think that's what we mean when we say that the less codependence you have the better the more you can be happy for the other person even if they're doing something that you're not there for Mm -hmm. the more you can accept that space doesn't hurt you the better
2: for me and you and
1: yeah yeah <laughs> that's just what we're trying to that's what we're trying to do yeah. yeah
2: so what's the second part
1: and also it has nothing to do with open there was like an open thrown in there but open monogamous whatever mm-hmm. this is just how i feel about dating
2: yeah
3: okay yeah the gist of the answer was in your guys's response already oh, kind cool. of but um, the second part is, I am unclear on what the point of a relationship would be if not to get addicted to the person who you are compatible with. That's interesting. If this addiction is not the end goal, why not be completely open instead of agreeing on varying degrees of exclusivity?
2: It's a great point. I mean that I mean what you're essentially saying, and I think Ben said there's differing degrees of codependence of mm-hmm. of what my lack of you means. but yeah, if go to the extreme. imagine the monk on in the, the whatever right he the Buddha the Buddha uh, has relationships but controls no one expects nothing from or of anyone but is so pleasantly surprised when you show up at his door and he pours you the tea and it, he doesn't even have a sexual relationship in most cases because mm-hmm. quite frankly what a lot of monks find is it gets in the way of this sort of equ- like yeah. ability killed. yeah you yeah. get addicted that's why I think sex has been shunned by so many of these monks because it it gets in the way of this uh, you're right. People, people want the addiction.
1: Yeah. No, and, and to your point, even forgetting, well, let's not say forgetting the addiction, but just looking at it in terms of codependence or fear of loss or whatever it might be. My friend who got into a re- serious relationship when we were in our early 20s and is now married to the person was debating, should I date her exclusively? Should I not? He was seeing a couple people. and He said, I'm going to make the grand compromise. <laughs> That's what he called it. And he said, what is the grand compromise? He goes, I'm going to stop sleeping with other people so that she will stop sleeping with other people which is exactly kind of what we're talking about, which is I don't want her to do this, so I'll stop as well, which is like a different version of I'm going to skip all my fishing trips with my friends mm-hmm. so that she will skip all her fishing trips with her friends and we'll never be apart. These are just mm-hmm. s- these are similar agreements. At least monogamy is an overt agreement, which, again, I personally think is better. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think in a world with no codependence and no addiction – you would see less jealousy and you would see less controllingness and you would probably see more non-monogamous relationships. I, I don't disagree with you. It's hard because then you get into this idea of how much is genetically pre-programmed, how much of jealousy is part of human nature. So I'm not here to be a proponent for or against monogamy or openness. But yeah, I think you are right in that you are, you are sensing that that is a degree of Codependence, monog- yeah. uh, codependence addiction control, whatever you might be.
2: I need you to do X or not do Y in order to be happy is what that is, right? I mean, that's what, mm-hmm. that's what monogamy is. If you do these things, I will be crushed. <laughs> Whereas
1: I would say a, a relationship you can look to as an example of what is possible of love, right, is – no matter who Charlie sleeps with, it does not affect our friendship. <laughs> Whether he's not sleeping with anyone or is monogamous or he has sex with a different person every fair, day.
2: There's, there's some people that I can't. Exes I, of yours, right? Like it's, it's Go not, for it, bud. <laughs> Good. Enjoy yourself. You could imagine, though. And, and I think that, that there's a degree of you need Less. fewer things from me. Sure. But some, and, and and that's kind of what I think Ben and I are driving at, is how big is the sphere of things that you need someone to do or not do in order for you to feel good, safe, and loved? Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to do is shrink that sphere to, to to keep as much of my love as I can in my own control. Like, yeah, Ben goes and does whatever Ben does. It's unlikely to have a negative impact on my day but when a girlfriend that i had would do something that i didn't like it, it could have such a negative impact sure. so and I think easily
1: another thing just to highlight because i think part of the question was what is your definition of this addiction or mm. this codependence? i call charlie because i want to go out to dinner with him he says no i call a different friend i got to dinner with that friend i can sit at dinner and not think about charlie <laughs> in the absence of charlie. I can just be hanging out with dan and brandon right in a more codependent addictive context you might try to see someone let's say you're not married let's say you're dating you don't live together and you hit them up for plans they say no and it makes you sad and you either Mm -hmm. don't make other plans or you do and you go out to dinner with your friends but your mind is on that other person you can't be present with your current company who honestly maybe the conversation is different but could be equally enjoyable if you were able to be present that's Mm -hmm. just another example of the difference between a relationship that's more codependent more addicted yeah whereas i think you'll see in a lot of non-sexual relationships you're capable of having fun, whether the person's there or not, even though it would always be additive to have Charlie there.
2: And this is, again, there's a lot of ways to define addiction, but one of them that you're touching on is addiction is defined by uh, you're being inspired by lack, right? Like you go to drink because you're sober, (laughs) and that's a problem. Not because drinking is wonderful. Yeah, because sober uh, is anxiety- Because sober is terrible. Uh, And when you're in a relationship, like you're going out because sitting home alone drives you crazy because you're thinking about that person and where they may or may not be, uh, versus Joy-inspired things are, I'm gonna go out with Dan and Brandon because Dan and Brandon are great. Oh yeah, Charlie's not here but I'm not thinking about all the people that mm-hmm. aren't here. I'm, I'm doing this in a more joy-inspired way. So that's uh, what we or I personally am trying to drive to. Fewer decisions made to reduce the, the perceived lack in my life and more decisions made to increase joy. Yeah, if you can do it to a lesser degree, if you can have less addiction or codependence, code what it allows you to
1: do is enjoy the person's company when they're there, and be happy and enjoy your life when they can't be there. Mm-hmm. So, hope that <laughs> answers the question.
3: Anything else? Yeah, the last question. Great question. Is from, Great yeah? question. Yeah, the last question is from a guy with the username Shoot at Square, and I heavily edited his comment. <laughs> <so. laughs> there's Uh, a lot of swear words in there (laughs) not a lot of swear words it's just a lot of a lot of broken up questions okay you guys are More. (laughs) so i hope i get his point across um so he says hey charlie and ben i'm someone who has had difficulty with newly formed relationships in the past consistently finding myself in the position where i feel that the other person is not as affectionate as i would like i realize this means i failed to understand and then enforce my standards with others I've recently written out and defined my, defined my boundaries, but wanted to ask how best I can communicate and enforce these standards in a way that's not aggressive or overly dramatic. So what is the Sorry. standard
2: that they need someone to be more affectionate,
3: that the other person is not being as affectionate as I would like?
2: and this is in a romantic relationship. I'm assuming, yeah okay, so I think generally speaking you're you're not asking someone to not do something, you're asking someone to do something, which I think is a slightly different. I agree approach. I agree. that's not a boundary. yeah. That is a request. Exactly. Which I think is different. Those are handled differently. Yes. And so I think what this is, is, I mean, where you would probably sit down and go to yourself is, I, if this is the case, need a relationship with a certain level of affection. This person is not doing it. My strategy, therefore, is not to demand that Mm -hmm. they do -hmm. this for me. It is to request that they do because I like them, mm-hmm. but also recognize if the answer is no, no further persuasion is necessary or even advised because yeah. I should just go find someone who wants to be this level of affection. Yeah, I agree. I think of standards and boundaries <clears throat> a lot of times as
1: well, especially boundaries yeah. as things that you find deal breakers to be, whereas mm-hmm. this sounds like something you would
2: like. Yeah. I would say... It could even be a deal breaker, but you're asking yes to yes, do something. Yes, it's but, a positive request.
1: Yes. Whereas with a negative, my advice would be probably different. But with a positive, I'd say it's two things. If you want to have your dating life, include people that are more affectionate. The number one area to do this would be in the filtering process, mm-hmm. right? Some people are just less physically affectionate. And it's not, I think it's not fair to try to date that person and then persuade or coerce them to being physically affectionate when they're not comfortable with that what I would suggest you do is go oh this person's funny and smart and beautiful and not affectionate and for that reason I will tell them that I like them but will not date them and I will tell them why or I will have this conversation with them where I say hey you're not as affectionate as I would like are you concerned is there something that's getting in the way is this this ideal for you yeah exactly and if they go no 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 I'm just not comfortable with touch but I really like you and when I love someone I am very touchy cool Mm -hmm. and if they go no I think cuddling is just weird okay that's your cue to leave if this is your number <laughs> yeah. one priority. So yeah, sometimes people will evolve and change, but you need to be having these conversations as blameless, judgmental inquiries where <laughs> you're, just match? Trying to, yeah. you're just trying to figure out if there's a fit. And then the second thing, if you find that someone was really affectionate and is not anymore, you can still have that conversation with them, but they're also at some point look to yourself and go, is there something I'm doing potentially? kills the desire to be physically affectionate with me if there's this pattern where you and i'm not saying it is but i don't know your life so i'm just throwing out the different scenarios if there's a pattern where you find women who are initially affectionate and then they become less so over like repeatedly then you're the common denominator here and my question would be can you look to yourself to see if there's behavior that is making people not want to be affectionate with you Mm -hmm. because it's two things basically it's either it's the, per- it's the wrong person or something you're doing, right? Those are the only two things it could be.
2: Or, or if there's a third, which is just, oh, I didn't realize that you, you like, I'm, I'm a bit nervous now that you've said this, this is a very easy shift for me to make. Cause sure. I'm I just literally just need you to mention it. Yeah. yeah. Great point. <laughs> like, Great point. Yeah. Um,
1: but I, but it, I would not pressure it or try to make it happen in any way beyond saying that you like it, you know?
2: Yeah. And, and you're curious. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully I that
1: the, I like to have a conversation early I actually very very early on first dates try to get out there that I'm a cuddler I like head scratches and massages and stuff like that and then you'll you'll see right away the reaction some people will go oh, I'm not into that some people go oh cool and then you can see they note it because yeah. if they like you I would ask
2: like do you like cuddling yeah and then it like no I'm just, like honestly I think this is a deal breaker for me yeah yeah <laughs> and it's not in a mean way it's just this is this is kind of a critical part of, yeah. of this relationship which i agree
1: i, I mean physical affection yeah. to me is huge yeah i just try to get it out there as early as possible yeah. and the nice thing about that is now instead of trying to persuade them to do something i basically said this is what i like and if they like it too they'll be excited and also if they want me to be happy in our relationship they know that i will want it to be physically affectionate it just gets it all out there in the open so then there, there's no coercion necessarily? later yeah, on. if the answer is no you you just i just know and i can dip and yeah go elsewhere yeah <laughs> so i hope that helps and by getting it out early i guess i don't that's why i didn't think of the third option the idea yeah. of telling like you don't have to have this conversation where you tell them that you like physical affection mm-hmm. if on the first it. date you tell them that you like physical affection yeah cool good
2: questions today yeah great questions thank good job guys. justin wonderful stuff thank you justin I'm back. No
0: flu, baby. Yeah, it's nice.
2: <laughs> Thanks for
0: listening. We'll Thanks see you for guys
2: in another episode. Peace.